Psalm chapter 2. We're going to read the passage as we normally would, and we'll come back and break it down. And if you're physically able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? Psalm 2, 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son today, I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for Psalm chapter 2. It is very relevant and very prophetic and uh, has a lot of application for our day. Each time we open the word of God, it's tempting to say this is for somebody else, but we need to hear this for us in our generation. There's so much going on and so many uh, question marks and, and maybe for some they've walked into this place and fear is uppermost. Or for others, maybe they're just saying, man, I'm, I'm wanting to take a stand right now with other believers and we need discernment, Father, in how we're supposed to do that as the church because your word is what should dictate to us how we're to behave and look at the world But this psalm is very relevant to us, Lord, so I'm asking by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your direction, that you would show us what you want us to see, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your bride, your people in this hour. In Jesus' name I pray, if you agree, would you say, amen. Well, uh, this last week, there's been a lot going on in the church, and it's really started from the beginning of this whole, what's been called a pandemic. And uh, in the last uh, just maybe 24, 48 hours, we've gotten reports that three major churches have received cease and desist orders from the governing authorities. Uh, One of them is Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks, pastored by Rob McCoy. The second church is Grace Community Church, pastored by John MacArthur. The third church that I know of is Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, pastored by Pastor Jack Hibbs. Each of those churches has received a cease and desist order from the government saying that we are no longer able to worship within our building. Now this building was built uh, and opened about five years ago. It'll be five years in October. If you look up, you can see there's pretty high ceilings here. There's a nice air conditioning unit working. And what we've been given from the state of California is basically these rules. They want us to meet outside in 90 or 100 degree weather with masks on 
socially distanced, and they've also said we can't sing. So a lot of churches have said, you know, what you're asking of us is impossible. First of all, we have to have a, a place to meet outside that's big enough. Then we, ha- we have to have the space. People have to have masks on. There's been a whole debate about, you know, the, uh, whether masks actually even do anything for this virus. And so a lot of churches, especially the bigger churches, when the original rulings came down, they said, well, you can meet, but you, can, you can't have over 100 people in your sanctuary. Example, Grace Community Church has a 3,000-seat sanctuary. Average weekend attendance, probably seven to 8,000 people. I don't know what Chino Hills has, but there's uh, seating probably for several thousand. But I'm hearing that they're having ten to 15,000 people come on a weekend. How in the world is a church expected to keep these guidelines? It's making it really impossible for us to meet and to do what we're called to do. And let me tell you that for me as a pastor, my greatest concern is not the political world or what the state is saying. My greatest concern is you. I want these doors to be open so that you can be ministered to, so that you can hear and receive the word of God, so that you can grow in your most holy faith. That's why these doors open each and every Sunday. And we don't know who's going to come on a given Sunday, but we know right now they're saying suicide rates are higher, death rates of suicide are higher in the culture than people dying of COVID. Have you heard a report about that? So right now there are pastors who have agonized, and I will tell you our board of elders and pastors have agonized in prayer over this issue because of the potential possibility of you getting sick and we don't want anybody to get sick and that's why many pastors have decided here's what we're going to do we'll open the sanctuary we'll have seating outside and anybody who feels in any way like they have the sniffles like they've been around somebody sick etc etc should watch the live stream that's pretty good right and right now we are spread apart and we are close to family members but we are spread apart we're doing our best But right now, more than ever, I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear the word of God, needs to be together. You know, we were created as one body to be together, not to be separated. And right now, I know that live stream is the second best for a lot of people, and I understand that. And and I have concerns for the flock, and I would say, hey, if you have underlying health conditions, please continue to stay home and watch via live stream. But you know you're missing something right now. That's the fellowship of the saints. That's the corporate gathering of worship. That's us being together and encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So here we are on this Sunday morning, and By the way, uh, Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks was told the first 1,000 people who showed up at that church this morning would be cited. They would be cited. So the pastor said, well, you'll get an extra gift if you come to worship this morning. (laughs) And it's not a coffee mug, baby. Right? Now, as far as I know, uh, I heard that they're worshiping, and it appears that maybe nothing has happened. And I know that many have been praying that the Lord would grant us favor and protection. And isn't it interesting the times in which we live? Some of you are going, no, I don't like it. <laughs> hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. But it is to me an exciting time to be a Christian. And we have been called to stand. 
Now, we, we want to take the stand for the right thing in the right ways. We want to do it lovingly and respectfully. We all realize that. But right now, we're sensing something in our country that's been happening, really, friends, for decades. It's been happening in our universities. It's been happening in our media. It's been happening in our culture. And there is a, there's been really a train that's been chugging along to try to get rid of God, to try to get rid of the morality of the Bible, to, tr- to teach our children that there's no absolute truth. And I tell you what, <clears throat> I start looking at what's happened in the last 30, 40 years in our country or a little bit more, actually since the 60s. And I, and I have to ask myself, what have I done about it? And in many ways, I think we've been asleep at the wheel. While we've sent our kids off to secular universities and they've been taught pretty much that there's no God, there's no absolute truth, and they've been taught a, a cultural mindset now that's being played out on the streets. The latest thing is that now they're burning Bibles in one of our American cities. So what do we do now, you might be asking. Here we are in the city of Corona where it's a Sunday morning, it's the Lord's Day, it's going to be a beautiful day. What should we do? What does the Bible say about times like these? This is why I felt a tug, and I'll tell you, it happened just about 20 minutes ago in prayer, that we should go to this psalm. Now the psalm opens why, with the question why, and We'll turn over to the book of Acts in a little bit, and we'll see that the psalm is given credit to David, although at the top of my Bible it doesn't say a psalm of David. But the question opening Psalm 2, and remember the psalms were written about over about a period of 500 years. Uh, many of them are located about 1,000 B.C., just to give you a time marker, about the time of David. And it says, why are the nations in an uproar? What a great opening question. The question why? Why do you think the nations are in an uproar right now? What causes the uproar among people? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's when we don't have any direction, when we live with a mindset that there's no God, there's no order, it's all about man and what man wants to accomplish Why are the nations raging right now? Why is everything in an uproar? Why in our country is what is happening now happening? I mean, what is it that we're trying to say? Well, it's we've lost our way in many respects. Because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. But we we in many ways have to say that maybe we've even let each other down within the church. Because oftentimes people have looked at the church maybe for order and maybe they haven't seen it in our lives. Amen? I mean, if we're chaotic and we're living like the world, then the world can tend to lose hope. And I know that there's a lot of people who are staying away from churches even this morning because they've lost hope. They've been disappointed by the church. And we have to remind them that we're imperfect. Amen? We have to remind them that we need grace. But today, the church has an opportunity to step up and, and hopefully bring peace in the midst of the storm. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a, faint, a vain or what we might say is a futile thing. You know, ultimately, secular humanism at its root 
that is that man is the center of the universe, has to have a takeover plot. And this has been happening for quite some time now. And when man takes over, when man becomes the center, when man tries to be his or her own God, the consequences are frightening. Because when we look in the mirror, we know we don't have the goods to do it. We face the reality of death. We face the reality that we don't have all the answers. Here we are in a very advanced computer age. Here we are in an age where, you know, we have things at our fingertips, information, weaponry. I mean, we could go down the list. We're a very advanced technological age, yet we have the same old issues, the same old problems. The same old dilemmas. And the people of the earth, the nations are in an uproar. Our nation is in an uproar. The people are devising a vain thing. What are they devising? Well, as we go on in the psalm, we learn that the vain thing they're devising is to dethrone God. And you can be assured that what is at the heart of man's rebellion is a desire to take the place of God. This is the battle. The battle is between a couple of worldviews, and it's not really that complicated. It's whether or not God will be on the throne or you will be on the throne. It's whether or not a people, a family, a nation will say, to God be the glory, God's dictates, God's ways will gird us and direct us or it's going to be our own dictates it's going to be our enlightened thoughts you know a lot of the philosophers who uh, dethroned god and said god is dead they didn't like the answers that faced them because really when god when you pronounce that god is dead and he no longer exists and no longer has a say in your life then you're driving the bus and I'll tell you what, right now it's headed for a cliff. And what a lot of us have been praying about for quite some time now, I would say for me, decades in this very city with other pastors and leaders is for revival. And here's the good news. Oftentimes when we get to points like this in world history, the people of God wake up, they arise they actually have a revival. That's what revival means. It means to revive those who are asleep or dead in the church, not outside the church. And then they start to permeate society. They start to stand up. And then all of a sudden, there's an opportunity for true revival. The peoples are devising a, faint, a vain thing. Look, if you try to live your life without God what you're going to find is vanity. See that word vain in the very first verse? That's a word. There's a, there's a Hebrew word there, and I'm not sure if it's the specific word that's used in Ecclesiastes, but if you've studied Ecclesiastes, what Solomon says over and over and over again is vanity. All is vanity. And the book is written with a mindset of eliminating God from the equation. So it's life under the sun, the, the ball of fire over our planet. It's, it's life under the sun without God. It's life just looking from below instead of getting above. And Solomon says over and over again, I tried wealth, I tried many, many relationships, I tried the writing of books, I tried building projects, I tried this, I tried that. I tried 700 wives or 
700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women in his life. That didn't work. He screamed, vanity! <laughs> or, loose translation, help! And when we remove God from the equation, this is what we end up with, vanity, which the word can mean meaninglessness. See, a life that is just about pleasure will end up meaningless. You can, you can get temporary excitement. You can go from relationship to relationship. You can say, I'll, I'm going to turn down God's uh, voice or I'll turn up the volume so I don't have to hear it. And you can listen to the ways of the world which are put before us every single day for our consumption. But you will end up empty. Take it to the bank. You know why I know that? Because I tried it. And I even tried to go back to it after I became a Christian. And life without God, although sin can be pleasurable for a season, is ultimately vain, empty, if you try to do life without God. The kings of the earth, verse 2, take their stand and the rulers... Take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Notice the next phase is focused on rulers of the earth who start to stand. They get together and they take a plan about how to square off with the Lord. That's Yahweh there, all capped. And his anointed, which points to the Messiah. On a sub-level, we are God's anointed. We are God's people. We are in Christ. We are holy because of that. But ultimately, this psalm is pointing to Jesus Christ. And if you think about how a society begins to try to divest itself of the Lord, attacks on Jesus Christ are at the center of that. And that's what's happening now in our day. People will talk about a higher power. They will talk about a God who can help you through this or that. But when you start to talk about God's anointed, God's Messiah, the anointed one, that's literally what Messiah or Christ means, by the way, the anointed of God. This is where history has been moving all along towards the anointed one who would arrive on the scene and, and show forth that he is the Messiah. But the rulers of the earth take their stand. They counsel together. Here's what they say. They say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They say, we will not have this man to rule over us. And even when Jesus came in his very generation, this is essentially what many people did. Even the religious leaders of the day, we will not have this man to rule over us. By the way, there are many interactions where they've seen Jesus' miracles. Jesus even told a parable in Matthew, I think it's chapter 21, where he says, they say, the religious leaders say, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And Jesus says, by that parable, you know who I am. You know exactly who I am. You've seen my miracles, you can't deny it, but you're too busy protecting your power, your position, and your little kingdom. And that's why they killed Jesus in the first century. Because he was a threat to them. And remember, Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, 
five times, no less than five times, tries to release Jesus. I find no fault in this man. Yet it was the religious leadership that stirred up the crowd to get him crucified. See, this is what's been happening even before the time of Jesus, and now we think of the time of Jesus, we think now, and here's the deal. We want to tear the fetters apart. We want to cast away their cords from us. We don't want God making the rules. And so ancient Israel did that. They said, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to follow the Ten Commandments. We're going to imbibe the ways of the nations around us. God warned them over and over again. When you enter the land, don't learn to imitate the detestable practices of the nations around you. And then he, he listed the things that they weren't to do, which included witchcraft and child sacrifice. I think I heard recently that you have uh, about a one in four chance in California even to get out of the womb. Do you think that the Lord hasn't been watching the thousands of babies that are killed every day in our state? Do you think that there's going to be no reckoning for that? But we want to tear God's fetters off. We don't want to hear that stuff. We, we don't want to hear God's truth. We don't want his fetters, notice how they put it, or we're going to tear away, we're going to cast away their cords. I heard Charlie Kirk uh, having a conversation with Pastor Jack Hibbs recently, and Charlie Kirk is a young conservative voice in, in our culture, and he goes on to university campuses with a ministry called Turning Point. By the way, he uh, was challenged by a man not to go to college. And uh, he decided to start Turning Point USA. And he's one of a conservative voice, one of several, who are just, call, he's really just calling people back to the Bible. And it's not easy for these guys to get on college campuses anymore and talk about these kinds of ideas, like going back to Scripture for our biblical morality. That gets laughed away by a lot of people. But he said something interesting. He said, you know, there's something at Harvard. There's a placard at Harvard. And it was written by, I think, the founding president. And it basically says this. I'm paraphrasing. But it says, within the law's constraints, men find happiness and life. And our great universities, when they were founded, they were founded by semi as seminaries for the training of ministers. Do you know that? And they say that that placard that I loosely quoted is covered up now by growth or foliage on the campus. <laughs> Maybe it's time to do a little trimming. See, these ideas were here in our country, and that's something that maybe a lot of you don't realize. Uh, I think most of you in this room do, but maybe a lot of our culture doesn't realize is that when universities were opened that are now really anti-God, they were open to train people in the Word of God. How far have we moved away from that? In fact, I will tell you, when a young person comes to me and says, Pastor Michael, where do you think I should go to seminary? There's not a long list of places I'm confident in to send them. And that's sad. 
You say, well, with all this talk of let's get the chains of God off of us. Let's, uh, let's get their fetters off. Is God nervous? Is he up in the sky biting his fingernails? What are we going to do now? Gabriel, Michael, come here. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's devise a plan. These humans are a formidable group. <laughs> no. In fact, this is one of the few places that I can remember in Scripture where it says God laughs. So apparently God has a sense of humor. Aren't you glad? And what makes him laugh is the pipsqueaks on the earth thing. You know what we're going to do? Put them up, God. Put them up. That tickles God. <laughs> if you ever wonder what makes God laugh, it's that. It's human beings thinking they're going to take God down. <laughs> do you know that the book of Daniel says that God, and Daniel said this to a king of his day, the most powerful king on the planet. God holds your very life breath in his hand. If he wanted to stop your heart right now, he could. Be careful. See, God sees what's going on, and what does he do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. In fact, it gets a little bit worse. It says the Lord, what? He scoffs at them. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but I could imagine a few things. Like, Gabriel, Michael, come here. Look at, look at that guy over there. It would be like an ant squaring off with you. Come on. I'll take you on. Right? And it's just a simple, and it's over. Next. <laughs> I wonder how many times a day God must laugh now. Because there's a lot of devising going on in our world. Then he will speak, five. But notice, it shifts from laughter to anger. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. See, although we could say God laughs in this sense, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why we preach the gospel. I got a chance to interact with a lady yesterday, and she's a believer, and she's growing in her faith. We're talking about the Great Commission, and she was saying, telling me that she's feeling a real push to go out and preach the gospel out on the streets. And you could tell she's, you know, she's kind of timid about it. And she said she asked a sister in Christ if that friend would go with her. And the friend said, sure. And they went out there. And, you know, that's intimidating. And she was talking about family members that she's praying for and sharing Scripture with. And it's such a cool thing to watch the people want to step out. And she's, we were talking about how God is patient with us. And I gave her a Bible verse. It's 2 Peter 3, 9. And it says that the Lord is not willing that any perish, but all what? Come to repentance. Why, why do we preach the gospel? We preach it because it's really good news, but I have to tell you, there's some bad news. And this doesn't get a lot of attention in our modern church. The bad news is our God is a consuming fire and he will judge sin. 
And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're not cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we should have, see, what should drive our evangelism is compassion, empathy. Someone preached to you because they were concerned about your soul. And that's part of what should drive us. And so it says, He will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury. But as for me, now the kings have been plotting, verse 2, they've been taking their stand. But as for me, the Lord says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God has a king. His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Just look over to verse, uh, Psalm 3, verse 3. But thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. The, David is talking about how he's feeling his adversaries are mounting up against him. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. And then we have Selah, which is a pause, ponder, think about it. See, the Lord has installed his king. And Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Do you believe that? You're not, you're not living for a temporary kingdom, brethren. You're living for something that is going to move way beyond this time. That's why you don't have to be afraid. He's king of the universe. He's king of kings and lord of lords. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. If you look at passages uh, on verse 7, quoted in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5, this, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, is a specific reference to the resurrection. Ask of me, 8, and I will surely give the nations, those nations are in an uproar, in verse 1, as thine inheritance. The very ends of the earth as thy possession. The Lord is going to give the nations as the inheritance to the Messiah. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Do you know that when the day of the Lord comes, the Bible depicts that Jesus is the one coming to execute God's wrath. In fact, in Revelation 19, the famous passage, Jesus, it's Jesus who's coming on that white horse with the angel armies with him to execute God's wrath. Jesus is the judge. It's good to know the judge. (laughs) And a lot of people who Consider the life of Jesus Christ. They don't realize that, yes, he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. But there's a day coming. It's called the day of the Lord. 
When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to ride in, if you will, here's the imagery, to execute judgment. But first, he will rescue his people. You can reference Revelation 19 and other places. Our Lord is going to come and save us, and he's going to come and execute judgment. Therefore, verse 10 says, Now, O kings, in light of this, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence or fear, and rejoice with trembling. And then do homage, that is, obeisance or worship the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Notice in my New American Standard, Son is capitalized. This is a prophecy about the Messiah specifically dealing here with his judgment. And you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a warning here. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. In John 3.16, Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They'll have everlasting life. Now this psalm takes on prominence in the New Testament. And I'll take you over there to the book of Acts. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 4. Let me just set the scene for a second. So there's been a healing of a crippled man, and it's an undeniable healing. Peter and John uh, in Acts 3.1 went to the place of prayer. There was a man who was lame from his mother's womb, and they, uh, he's asking for silver and gold. If you remember the story, they say, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man rose up, and he began dancing around. (laughs) And it was an undeniable miracle right there in the temple courts. And it was an opportunity to preach. Peter, when he saw the amazement of the people, begins to break into the gospel. Acts 3.12, he goes back. He talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talks about Jesus, God's Messiah or servant. Acts 3.13, He says, you disowned, Acts 3.14, the holy and righteous one, you asked for a murder to be granted to you, you put to death the prince of life. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, Acts 3.17, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets, of his holy prophets from ancient time. Peter preaches. He tells them, turn away, verse 26, from your wicked ways. And then the threat comes. 
The religious leadership says, we don't want you preaching anymore in this name. There'll be no more of that preaching going on. <laughs> we don't want to hear any more about Jesus. You think they felt a little bit guilty? You think they felt a little bit uneasy when they were told that they killed the Prince of Life? And Peter says in Acts 4.11, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation, what's your Bible say, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in no one else. There's nowhere else to turn. I'm sorry, Oprah. I was talking to a friend the other day. And we were talking about how people get this weird idea that there's all these different ways to God. And he said, imagine that I picked up one of these people at the airport and they told me, I want you to, or I picked up somebody at a hotel and they said, I want you to drive me to this airport. And let's say I just started going the opposite direction. And they said, where are you going? This is not the route to that airport. And I responded, well, all roads eventually lead to this airport. It doesn't matter which direction you go, what road you take, what highway, what freeway, what byway. We're going to all get there. It'll be fine. Now, if you're in the back seat of that taxi, you're thinking this person has lost their mind. There's an easy route I can call up on my phone right now to get to the airport. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Let's go this way. We'll get there. But my flight is leaving at this time. It's all right. Just enjoy the ride. That's ridiculous. There's one way of salvation. And here's the good news. God has made a way. He didn't have to make a way. He could have just said, bye. I'll start over. Aren't you glad he didn't give up on you? Now, as they observed 4.13, the confidence of Peter and John understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been, oh, what a great verse, with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go, out, go aside, out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. How about you get right with Jesus? How about you say a miracle has been done here. There must be power in the name of Jesus. He must be the Messiah. Let's repent of our sin and get right with God. Now we've been praying and we're commanded to pray for all our rulers. All who are in authority. And our prayer should be that they come to know God. Because God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And brethren, we need to be careful here because we're tempted sometimes to pray what's called in the Psalms imprecatory prayers. Everybody know what an imprecatory prayer is? An imprecatory prayer is when you say, Oh Lord, break their teeth in the name of Jesus. Oh Lord, let them eat gravel in the name. Of Jesus. Now, I will say there are imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. 
And I have been quite tempted to pray a lot of them lately. Anybody else? <laughs> but you remember when the apostles wanted to destroy a village because that village wasn't open to the preaching and they said, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven? Let's have a barbecue. Let's get to the edge of town and boom. And the Lord said, wait a minute. You don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to what? To save them. We got to check ourselves right here, especially in this hour that we're actually praying the right prayers. And, and we need to pray that people in office, wherever they may be, whoever they may be, come to the living God. That our nation returns to God from the top down. If you look at the history of Israel, Israel became healthy as a nation when from the top down there was faith and belief in God. And it's happened in our nation. In fact, uh, in our history, our great leaders, as fallible and imperfect as they were, you know, I can cite to you right now prayers from Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, who looked to the living God to help us along as a nation in, in the early days. And essentially said, Lord, I can't, I can't do this job without you. That was Abraham Lincoln. He said, I find myself falling to my knees every single day, asking God for help. I mean, imagine just for a second if you were the President of the United States. It's a tough gig. And it's, it's hard for any human being to be in that kind of position. That's why we've been called to pray for our leaders and our governors and our mayors and, I would add, our pastors. And so the threat comes, and basically the warning is 17, speak no more in this name. They summoned them, 18, Acts 4, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. You can judge our action, but we're going to obey God and not you. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis, 21, on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God. See, when the people step up, something happens for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now, we're winding down, but what I want to show you is the response of the church to the threats, to the difficulty, to the persecution. Here's what happens. It says, when they had been released, Acts 4.23, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, what did they do, brethren? They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, Acts 4.25, through the mouth of our father David, Thy servant, did say, and here's our psalm, 
Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. They're quoting scripture now as they're praying, led by the Spirit. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now what's interesting is on the spot, with no apparent preparation in Bible study, when the church hears what's going on and they begin a prayer meeting, Scripture begins to flow from Psalm chapter 2. And we have prayer meetings all the time. And I wish more of you were at these prayer meetings, but here's what happens. Before every service, at least 15 minutes before, Wednesday nights from 6 to 7, we get together and pray. And I believe that God's people have forgotten about the power of prayer. Because it's hard. It's a discipline in many ways. But when we pray, heaven is enlisted. When we pray, evil is resisted. Call to me, Jeremiah 33, 3 says, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Probably because you haven't been praying. We serve the same God today that was alive in the first century, alive at the time of David, the one who spoke the universe into existence, and the one who predestines history. He writes it in advance. Theologically, I'm not going to worry about every single little detail. I'll just tell you, God has the story written about where this world is going. That you can be assured of. And when Jesus died... In the first century, God had ordained the death of Jesus. You say, well then, were Judas and Pontius Pilate and Herod simply pawns in some cosmic game? No, they had free will. But since God is omniscient, he knows everything, he can't learn anything. He never says, whoa, I didn't see that coming. He knew what was going to happen. And he ordained Jesus to die in the very history in which we are embedded and to rise from the dead. And he ordained that because he wanted to save us. Just because God knows what's going to happen in advance doesn't mean he's pulling a string on your back to make you do something. And yes, this is something we got to wrestle with. But God doesn't need to look down a corridor of time and anticipate what's going to happen. He's eternal. Everything for God is right in front of him. He, know, he knew what Judas was going to do. He knew what Pilate was going to do. He knew what Herod was going to do. He knew what Nicodemus was going to do and Joseph of Arimathea. He knew what the religious leaders were going to do that denied the Christ. His foreknowledge of something is part of his nature so they quote the psalm they talk about how god had planned this and they say and now lord 29 take note of their threats and grant that by thy bond servants thy bond servants may speak thy word with all confidence let's pray for boldness while thou god does extend thy hand to heal 
and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. What do they pray? Lord, take note of their threats and give us boldness. Baptize us with boldness. That's been one of my prayers in the last several months. Give us confidence. Extend your hand to heal. Make it undeniable. I even prayed today, aware of what was going on in our culture. Lord, just do something that blows people's minds. Just do a mighty miracle that's undeniably you. Why not pray that? Years ago, uh, we were just starting on the corner of Lincoln and Ontario. We had two churches merged in 2007 to start Living Truth Christian Fellowship. And I was interacting with a gentleman who had been in ministry for a long time, and he said, Pastor Michael, I want to challenge you to be praying that God would do miracles in your generation. Pray that he would do miracles. Why not? Why not? He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And you know, in one of those early meetings, <laughs> we were gathered in our old A-frame Baptist construction A-frame chapel. By the way, a very strong building. And we're in the middle of the service, and the building shook. And I'm not kidding around. I was up at the pulpit in it. You guys are checking right now. Is it really happening? And we didn't hear any reports about an earthquake or nothing like that. <laughs> okay! <laughs> it's the book of Acts! And when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. All things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Father, in our generation, we have not really seen days like this, I think, for most of us. Some have seen them, perhaps, in other countries. And we're at a really interesting time, a, a time when we could easily lose heart or become overwhelmed by fear. But we have a, we have a model here in Psalm 2 and the book of Acts, chapters 3 and 4, about what we should be doing. And what we should be doing is praying for boldness, praying for miracles, united in faith and hope, and taking our stand for the gospel. Father, would you help us? Would you help me in my weakness? Because it's easy in our humanity to not want to deal with it, to not want to take a stand or deal with the stuff that we got to deal with. But in our generation, Lord, the biggest thing is the church has an opportunity to shine right now with the hope of the gospel. And we know the gospel's always been opposed and your people have had stretches of tough sledding, no doubt. 
but you are so faithful. And what a beautiful picture to end with here. The church had one heart. They were standing together. They were taking care of each other. And God, how we need that. We can't be autonomous in these times. And, and that's true, not just in a fellowship, but it's true church to church. We've got to stand together. Sometimes we say, oh, that's happening over there. Oh, too bad. But no, our brothers and sisters are trying to stand right now, and we're praying over them right now. Every single person who's stepped out in faith this morning, Lord, to gather in your name, whatever that looks like. And that's not just our country. That's places like China where the church has gone underground for a long time. That's many other nations that have had to uh, pray and, and lean into God and lean into one another and be strategic and discerning. God, we need that. We pray over our state. We pray over our governor. We pray over our local leaders. We pray that there would be a change of heart towards the church. That our testimony would be one that we just want, we want to bring a healing balm to people, Lord. We want to speak truth and love. We, we are a people who desirous to see men saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're desirous that the love of Christ would be our greatest witness. We're desirous that, Lord, we could tell people the good news of Jesus and how to walk out the rest of their life living within his loving boundaries and finding great delight and joy in their life. Now, if you've tuned in by live stream, would you keep your head and heart bowed if you're here? If you don't know Jesus, if you never realize he's the singular way of salvation. Trust him right now. Something like this, Lord Jesus, would you save me? Thank you that you, the king, entered into this world on a rescue mission. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me, taking my punishment, taking my place. Thank you that you rose again from the dead, defeating death, my greatest enemy. I place my trust in you. Be my king. Be my Savior, be my God, my Lord, my friend. If you're a prodigal and you've been away from the Lord and maybe you feel like you fell away a little bit or a lot, He would invite you, He would bid you to come home. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And if you're a saint here today and you're already saved and you're just trying to Navigate the times and, and stand strong and stand for your family and stand with your church. God bless you. May he strengthen you. May he grant you peace and a sense of mission for this season. In Jesus' name I pray.